Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 9. The Half-Blood Prince Harry and Ron met Hermione in the common room before breakfast next morning. Hoping for some support for his theory, Harry lost no time in telling Hermione what he had overheard Malfoy saying on the Hogwarts Express. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Before we start this week's episode, just a quick note that tickets are on sale for our Cambridge, Massachusetts live show. I'll be coming back to Boston for the first time since I moved away, so we'd love to see you there. Come and join an evening of sacred reading and Harry Potter explorations. Vanessa, as we're all learning, we like to share a random fact about a city where we have a Harry Potter and the Sacred Text group. I think it's why people tune into our podcast <laughs> are for these facts. What have you got for us this week, Casper? Well, in a thrilling factoid, the Minnesota Public Library was the first American public library system to separate children's books from so-called adult books, which I think is a fascinating step in the journey towards constructing childhood. And gave precocious children an excuse to go to the adult section. Oh, yeah. And yes, indeed, we have a Harry Potter and the Sacred Text local reading group run by Hope Hutchinson and Courtney Young, both fabulous. So check out harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups to find out where and when they meet. And we have almost 50 groups worldwide now. So there either most likely is a group near you or you should start one and become the 50th. On the show today, we're hearing from Gabby Dunn, who Vanessa spoke to earlier. So I'm looking forward to hearing her story. Gabby, do you want to just introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. I'm a writer and a comedian and author in Los Angeles. I have a podcast called Bad With Money. And I also have a podcast called Just Between Us. And I wrote a book called Bad With Money. And uh, my comedy partner, Allison Raskin, and I, who do the Just Between Us podcast, have our second book out now called Please Send Help. And our first book was called I Hate Everyone But You. And those are novels. Yeah, young adult novels about friendship. Yeah. Well, I am in the middle of reading Please Send Help right now, and it is an absolute joy. So we are so glad to have you on. And you are going to tell a story on the theme of friendship. Um, so this is about a, a friendship breakup where I was very close friends with this girl, like attached to the hip, like literally a person who I thought was going to be a bridesmaid, super, super close, um, like sisters. And she she often demanded a lot of loyalty from me and wanted me to cut people off who had wronged her. And, and so I would do that. Eventually, like there was this 
group of friends that we were part of. We were all in a group chat. We were all super close. But me and this girl especially were like best, best, best friends. Saw each other every day, best friends. And I I had been like invited to this other girl's birthday party every year, basically, who was part of our friend group who was in the um, group chat. And all of a sudden, I, I wasn't invited. And I found out I wasn't invited because I went on Instagram that night and all these pictures popped up of all of them hanging out at this girl's birthday party. And I wasn't sure like why I had been disinvited. So I I texted, I mean, in a very dramatic flair, I texted the group chat and was like, message received and then removed myself from the group chat. And then this girl like reached out to basically do damage control and was like, I didn't know how to tell you. I didn't know how to, um, when to tell you after or before, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, you didn't consider maybe like not going or saying like, hey, Gabby's not invited and like she's been invited every year and she's part of our group of friends. Like, why is she not invited? You know, anything to to vocally stand up for me or to say like, well, you know, I'm not comfortable going if you don't like Gabby or whatever. And she didn't do that. And so I it was like a falling out. Like I, I just was like, I don't trust this person. I'm, I'm done. And so we stopped being friends. And it was very, very weird because it's easier to explain a, a relationship breakup. People understand that more than they understand a friend being like, we're not friends anymore. And people are like, well, why? But so I wasn't really prepared for like the feeling of, of seeing her, which is like I was at a party and she was there and I hadn't seen her in forever. Uh, she came up and was like, hey, do you want to grab a drink after this and like talk? And I and I said, okay. And again, like this person was like my other arm basically. And it was like, what have you been up to in the last year? And and eventually like I started crying and I was hysterically crying. And um, she was like, why are you crying? And I was like, because you're an ex, like this is a breakup. Like this is a friendship breakup. This is just as serious as a romantic breakup. And then she started crying and then we were crying and like hugging each other. And we were like, this is so stupid. I love you. And she was like, I love you too. But it it just, it, it hasn't been the same and it won't, it won't ever be the same, but it felt more dramatic and like more heart wrenching than I've never had that with any like romantic breakup. And I think people just don't take friendship breakups as seriously, and they should be. Yeah. I have such mixed feelings about friendship breakups because I think that to some extent they're so important to have that moment of closure where it's like, can we both just acknowledge that things are not what they used to be? But then one of the things I love about friendship is that because – we don't as formally break up, it means that we can come back to each other with a little bit more ease of like, oh, we just haven't talked in three months. How are you? And it's like more easy to pick things back up. But I completely agree with you. I, you know, I think that sometimes we undervalue friendships and they are just as long, if not longer partnerships in our romantic ones. My best friend and I have been friends since we were five. So we have had our 30-year anniversary. Oh, my like, God. Yeah, and my partner and I won't have that for many, many years. Exactly. So. Yeah, I think um, when you're young, you go through a lot of phases and you feel like you can treat friends a certain way that maybe you would never treat romantic partners. Yeah. The balancing of friendships is hard. I just find as I get older, I want fewer and fewer acquaintances. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I only want people – who I say I love you to and I hang up 
And if I don't love you, go away. <laughs> um, so your book obviously deals with a lot of themes of friendship. It is two best friends writing to one another um, via text and email, keeping them up to date on each other's lives. What are some of the biggest themes that you feel like you and Allison are grappling with in this book? Um, in terms of their friendship, I mean, I think there's always uh, – they're very different people. And like – that's hard. I think also in our real lives that we kind of pull from that to be the characters. What I would do isn't what she would do and what she would do isn't what I would do. But is that is that important uh, for friendship? Or is it just important to respect the other person's choices if they're not hurting anyone? And so that we, you know, Jen and Ava, who are the two characters deal with that a lot. But also knowing when to step in because I think in this book, Jen definitely has an issue with alcohol. And Ava sort of steps in and is like, hey, this might not be the best because it's not just a difference of lifestyle. It's like, hey, this is hurting you. Yeah. Well, Gabby, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and telling us that wonderful story. And good luck with the book. It's called Please Send Help by Gabby Dunn and Allison Raskin. And I am only halfway through, but I could not recommend it more highly. Oh, thank you so much. Vanessa, in your conversation with Gabby, I love what you said about not wanting more acquaintances, but just wanting people in your life as you get older that you say, I love you too, which I so resonate with that. Is this when you cut me out? <laughs> this is when I'm like, I don't love you. No, I do love you. <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> Casper, I love you so much that I can't wait for your 30 second recap. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay, so everyone's figuring out in a very un bad system. Bad system for figuring out what classes you can take. Because first of all, this like teachers have their own standards. Like Slughorn's like, oh no, no, fine, I'll take a lower grade. Mm, not good. Um, bad pedagogy. Okay, so then Harry gets into potions and they get given books, and then this book has all of this like graffiti on it. Not graffiti, just writing. Uh, that was a judgment. And then he's he starts following the instructions, and oh my god, his potion is amazing. And Slughorn has created four different potions, and like one is the elixir of love and one is lucky things and then he wins it and hooray um would a word instead of graffiti be marginalia oh 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 my god snape is our first marginalia user in the book yeah okay vanessa 30 seconds on the clock here we go stop so it turns out that neville's grandmother really wants him to take transfiguration and then mcgonagall is like i'm gonna remind her that just because she was bad at charms doesn't mean that it's a silly subject (laughs) Boom! So then they go to Slughorn's class and Draco is really upset because he wants the Felix Felices because it seems like something really high stake is going to happen for him. And Hermione gets really frustrated because she is following the instructions very exactly and Harry does better. And then it turns out that he's following these instructions and Ginny is like, shouldn't you be worried? What if it's Tom Riddle's diary all over again? But it's not. Uh, guys, just a quick update. Polyakov did great in his OWLs. Amazing. Are you pen pals with Polyakov? You know, we we started exchanging letters and he just he's a beautiful penman. Hermione keeps in touch with Krem. Right. You keep in touch with Polyakov. It's a whole international confederacy of joy. The Four Wizard Tournament was a great success for international <laughs> bonding. So Casper, I think that we should start with Neville and Transfiguration and McGonagall because yes. we often think of friendship as peers coming together and supporting each other and chosen family. But we also use it colloquially as like, well, that is no friend of mine, Mm. right? Well, I'm curious as to whether you think that McGonagall is sort of being a good friend to Neville in this moment, because 
I think that we really see exactly what you said in your 30-second recap, how arbitrary some of these standards are. And how when Snape is out of the room, for example, you know, so many of the students are able to do better at potions. Right. I just hate the idea that you have one teacher for all of these years who maybe you're nervous in front of. And so you don't necessarily do as well in a class as you would like to for all sorts of reasons. And that, therefore, your whole career is set off because one teacher was in charge of your entire education. And part of me thinks McGonagall does a really good job here of saying, well, Neville, do you like Transfiguration? Because I never got the impression that (laughs) you really enjoyed it. And I do think that that is like a friendly, generous question to ask. Yeah. But I still think that these standards are so arbitrary and more than arbitrary, they are biased by the teachers. And so I'm just wondering if you think McGonagall as being a good teacher and headmistress here, or if she's like being no friend to Neville. It's so interesting because we don't know what the next question would have been if Neville had said, yes, I really love Transfiguration. I'm just nervous. And by the way, I was fighting in the ministry. Please let me into your class. Like, we don't know what I what I love about what she does in this moment. And I think exhibits this really lovely moment of kind of intergenerational friendship is because she knows Neville's grandmother and she reveals a piece of information that Neville probably did not know. What what she does is give Neville this gift of saying like, what you love is just as good as what anyone else loves. Like just because it isn't what your grandmother loved. And by the way, she probably didn't love it because she sucked at it. it. It doesn't make your love and your skill any less worthy and it reminded me, I've I've only heard of it, I've not read the study in full, but a really striking statistic that if you grow up in a community with intergenerational friendships, people are 80% less likely to suffer from depression later in life, which I was just like, whoa, that's a huge statistic. And so in this place of Hogwarts, which is so anxiety-provoking and dangerous and stressful in so many ways, I, I was like, oh, this really matters to Neville because... I think here we have a mentor and a friend and a, and a teacher and authority figure who's helping him see himself differently. And that's such a gift, I think. Well, and I think that we've all had this experience of as we age, people who were mentors or authority figures become friends. Right. And I think that hopefully Neville and his grandmother will eventually be able to get to that point. But McGonagall has just expedited that process, right? (laughs) By sharing something about his grandmother that he didn't know, reminding Neville something that I think is easy for all of us to forget about elderly people, which is that they were once young. Yeah. Um, And so I think that, you know, Neville can go home and maybe next time tease her gently and be like, well, you maybe didn't do so well in charms, but look at me, grandma. And so I think that McGonagall is in part offering him this gift of saying, I was friends with your grandmother, or, you know, so I knew this. And by the way, she was young once too. And by the way, her opinion is not gospel, Mm -hmm. right? Like it is coming from a place of bias. And I wonder if this is actually an important moment towards their probably collaboration next year. You know, we know that Neville's going to be so vital in the leadership of students as the Caros take over Hogwarts. And McGonagall and Neville are really the kind of leaders of the staff and leaders of the students. And I I love this little moment of growing friendship, really, between the two of them. And they're going to become colleagues one day. Neville's going to become a teacher at Hogwarts. Ah! So they will legitimately be colleagues. You know, when I taught for a year at a Jewish high school in L.A., 
And my old pediatrician, when he retired, decided that he wanted to teach high school math. And so my (laughs) pediatrician was a teacher, was my colleague. And forever, I was like, hi, Dr. Mendelson. And he was like, please, Vanessa, call me. I do not remember his first name, no matter how many times he said it, because I was like, nope, you healed my strep throat. Like, but it was just, it was a delight of my life to be colleagues with this like beloved doctor of what, mine. Was it weird in any way? Like, what was that like to suddenly, because you have roles and kind of established ways of interacting with people and then suddenly it's changed. You know, you move from a teacher and a student to being friends or you move from, you know, a mentor to being a colleague. Can you be both at the same time or do you need to be one or the other, do you think? I mean, so obviously this is just like, my point of view. But I feel like I've been lucky enough to become friends with several of my mentors. Mm. And I would say that it's fluid. You can take your mentor hat off and, you know, put your friend hat on. Right. And I would say in many of those relationships, we are now mostly friends. Right. And then every once in a while, I will sort of ask them to put their mentor hat back on. And that's the key for both people to be able to navigate when the hat is on and when the hat is off. And and I think that's what's lovely about this moment, because I think we trust both Neville and McGonagall to do that. Like if Neville is caught breaking the rules or like, let's say he was back in a transfiguration class, we would very quickly be back into a relationship of authority and, and teacher rather than this kind of growing collegial friendly bond that's that's growing. Yeah, I will say, you know, Matt Potts, who's been on the podcast several times, has become one of my best friends and he was my professor. And Matt and I only became friends like after I graduated, right? right? Which I think is another really important part. He no longer had any formal power or authority over my life. And it was like months after that our friendship even started, let alone sort of transition from that mentor friendship. Totally. That might be a good kind of indicator of like, if you're in a formal responsibility role, then you do need to keep some distance. Like Dr. Mendelssohn was no longer your doctor and then could be your colleague, right? If he had also been your doctor at the same time, no. Right. And I don't think that McGonagall and Neville are like becoming friends in this moment. I think there's a gesture toward you are going to graduate in a year and a half or so. And like you and I are more alike than you might think. You and Mm. I, like I am willing Mm. to show you a little bit of my humanity here and humanize your grandmother for you. Do we want to take a second to problematize? that she is gossiping about Neville's grandmother to him or are we just fine with it? I am so fine with it. (laughs) Because it doesn't, the only judgment she's making, she's revealing information, which is that Augusta failed charms. Which is not her information (laughs) to reveal. But also it's like 50 years ago. I'm fine with it because it's for such a distinct purpose of saying like, I'm concerned you're a little bit bullied by your grandmother. And so let me like, take away a little bit of her authority. Well, more than that, it's like you might make a choice that's really not the right one for you. And I have one piece of information that could help you make a better choice. I feel like it's in service of the right goal. I agree. I just still, if I were Augusta, I'd be like, typical Minerva. (laughs) (laughs) She never changed. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lovely multi-Weasley protection kind of situation throughout this this chapter. It opens with Ron saying to a more junior student saying, it's rude to point because there's people pointing at Harry. And, you know, this is something we saw from the very, very beginning of book one, that Ron is like standing up for Harry in a way that like Harry probably wouldn't do that himself, but it feels nice when someone else does it for you. And I think that's one of the things that we love about Ron. And then at the very end of the chapter, Ginny is kind of like 
freaking out a little bit that she overhears Harry and Hermione and Ron talking about, oh, I followed instructions from writing in a book. And she was like, guys, I've done that. No way. What are you doing? And so there's this lovely element of looking out for Harry, but more than that, like feeling kind of responsible for him. And it's just another way in which all of the Weasleys, I think, feel like Harry is a brother or a son. Like it's a familial response in this moment that I just really loved. Yeah, I think that one of the beautiful things about being loved by a friend is that they sometimes worry more about you than you necessarily worry right. about yourself. I will say that I see myself in this Weasley-ishness of like being overprotective of friends. And I think to some extent for me, it makes me lose credibility with friends. Like, huh. I just find that I sometimes step in it. Like, you and I got into a fight once because I – everybody write into Casper because everyone is going to agree with me on this. <laughs> but you don't wear a helmet when you bike. That's true. And I just, like, become a nag, right? Where I'm like, your brain matters to me. You owe it to me to wear a helmet. And, like, it's none of my business if you wear a helmet or not. But it it is your business because you're going to have to organize the funeral. Like, it's lovely. And also, I, I just because I see myself in it, I can also see how it can be oppressive. Yeah. No, it's it's a fine balance. And I feel like... <laughs> no, I'm on the wrong side no, of it. No, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> no, it's, it made me think about it in a very different way when we had that conversation. Um, and this is years ago now, but because I'm kind of headstrong and I'm like, in Holland, nobody wears a helmet. And why should I wear a helmet? Because we're in Boston, <laughs> not Holland. And there aren't as good of bike lanes and drivers aren't as used to bicyclists. So let's just reenact this whole fight for everybody. <laughs> and And when you said that, I was like, mm, okay, you're right. You're right. And it made me realize that like my life is not just my business, which is kind of a confronting moment. And I and I think that's always the tension for Harry is that he's always living in a world where it's like, it's me against Voldemort, like Madonna, it's like me against the music. But it's moments like this that remind him like, no, people care about me and they feel like they're involved whether they want to be or not. And obviously Ginny and Ron do want to be involved. Well, and Ginny is involved twice, right? She loves him. And then also she's like, did I go through that in vain? For nothing? Like, right. are you not going to learn from my right. mistake? And I and I do think that's part of why I'm so fervent about bike helmets. A bike helmet saved my life once. Right. And so I'm like, no, the difference right. between life and death can be a helmet. Right. But it's both love for Harry, which we know how much Jenny and Ron really see him as like part of the family. I don't want to say that Jenny sees him as a brother, <laughs> given that that will get weird in just a few chapters. But um. <laughs> But also, like, please learn from my life. And I feel like you're not taking me seriously in the lessons that I, like, I wonder if Ginny actually feels disrespected by this. That's what, it does feel like that, because there's there's an intensity. And this is a repetition of something we saw in the last book, where she brings it up again. So, Oh, if only someone you knew had been possessed by Voldemort. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But it's, when I was thinking about this theme of friendship, that, that element of protection and being willing to assert yourself into someone else's life, even sometimes uncomfortably, actually, I think is, an, is a mark of friendship. And you know, my joke about Ginny being a sister or not, I think speaks to another really important element of friendship. Mm. And I think it is the thing that makes friendship special and distinct from partnership mm. is that friendship can be fluid. You can yes. go from like being best friends and talking every single day to sometimes like not talking for three months and then just picking right back up. Right. Whereas, you know, a partner, you know, life dictates a certain level of commitment. Right. Whereas the fluidity of friendship, I think, you know, you can put your sister hat on and then you can put your date hat on and then you could, right? Like you can 
play so many different roles in friendship. And mm. I think that that is a real, a real gift of friendship. And we see that with Jenny and Harry. That's really interesting. Because one of the things that I would have said maybe at the beginning of this conversation is like, oh, like one way that you know if someone's a friend is if they fit into your family. And I really love what you just said, Vanessa, about they play different roles, because I think sometimes the most wonderful friends are completely different from the rest of your life or your background or your, you know, your upbringing in some way, because they help you discover part of who you are that is different from where you come from. And I think we've seen already in this book how some of Harry's friends are kind of odd. I mean, Luna comes to mind absolutely as someone who wouldn't fit in with his kind of, you know, familial crew. I mean, she was like Fleur, she just wouldn't fit into the Weasleys everyday life. So I'm, I'm just thinking more about that kind of diversity of friendships of, of the power of that and the value of that in our lives. So Casper, another interesting moment of friendship to me is we get the configurations of everybody who's in the potions classroom. And there are four Ravenclaws and there are four Slytherins, but there's only one Hufflepuff and three Gryffindors. And so because every table seats four, the Slytherins sit with the Slytherins and the Ravenclaws sit with the Ravenclaws, and then the Gryffindors sort of absorb the one (laughs) Hufflepuff, Ernie McMillan. So I was just reminded, first of all, of like elementary school where your like desk mates became your friends because you were like, hi, I'm five and you're five and we're sitting next to each other. And that like that is to some extent how you become lifelong friends with someone is just who you get seated next to. Totally. I was hearing from my sister-in-law about her sorority experience. Same thing. Or even just like camp or wherever. Or like if you're neighbors, like the the structural reasons how we get into relationships. I mean, freshman roommates, right? You get randomly assigned someone and then they're in your wedding and godparent to your child or whatever. Or you never want to see them again. (laughs) Or they are your arch nemesis and you avoid each other at all costs. I was just thinking about Ernie... And how they don't become friends, even though they're seated next to each other. And I'm wondering why you think that is. And my theory is that Ernie is so awkward because he's going around shaking hands (laughs) in high school. Ernest Ernie. Yeah. (laughs) Hello, Harry. Put it there, partner. Good to see you. This is so weird. Is Ernie like a schmoozer, like social climber and not trying to be their friends? Are they just so like isolated. We're the trio. I just feel like this would be an opportunity for cross-house friendship. And it they've like been through the DA together. Ernie's also super not stealth about the DA. He's like, really missed the DA this year. And I'm <laughs> like, shh, Ernie. People are listening. Yeah. Let's not admit to being in a insurgent army together. <laughs> anyway, what do you make of this? Is this a missed opportunity? Does Ernie just sort of suck? Maybe Harry is set. Right? Like, maybe he's like, I've got great friends. You know, maybe like you, he's like, I'm not looking for acquaintances right now. You know, we'll fight together in the fight, but actually, like, don't have my number. Um, And that's okay. Like, I know everyone could be a friend, but not everyone, like, has to be a friend friend all of the time. Yeah, so maybe this is an opportunity to question my no acquaintance rule and to say that, like, acquaintances do matter. Oh, for sure. Right? And the fact that... Ernie and Harry aren't like, let's get lunch. Let's sit at the same table. But instead are like, we can sit next to each other and work well together and we'll lend each other things and be friendly to one another. That that is an important form of relationship. You don't have to be friends with someone in order for their relationship with you to matter. Right. And I think the key thing is as long as the expectations are equal on both sides. Right. The exhausting thing is when maybe you're an acquaintance and you're trying to become someone's friend. And it's like, why is this not happening? I want to get to know you better. And so sometimes we just, 
you know, it's just like, hey, I feel really glad that we're connected and that we're passionate about birding together. But like, let's not get lunch on Thursday. So somebody once called me out. I was like, let's get lunch. And she was like, let's just admit that we're never going to get lunch. And I, part of me respects that in the same way that we respect Luna's awkward honesty. But the other part of me was frustrated by it because I was like, well, what matters is that in a perfect world. We would. Yeah. In a perfect world, if I had just a little bit more time, Mm. you are somebody who I would want to be friends with. And that like. Just given how busy you are and how busy I am and the fact that, like, I'm very committed to being able to nap at least once a week, right? Like, Ugh, it's yes. not it's not that I'm busy every minute of the day. It's that I also in, value yes. downtime and, right. like, need to take care of myself. And so I don't know what the right way to sort mm. of admit that is, mm. is to say, like, I like you so much. Mm. And in this, like, alternate world where we lived closer, had more time, any number of things. I would love to be friends with you. And yet, like, I still need time to shower. (laughs) Right. And I think that point of, like, if we lived closer, which takes us back to Ernie, right? Like, if we were in a group together, if we did do a project or if we were neighbors or, you know, if we both had kids the same age, like, then, then it would happen. Yeah. Okay, Vanessa. Final point has nothing to do with friendship. But the thing that really struck me is we hear a lot about favorite smells in this chapter because Hermione is in love with Ron. It's so adorable. She's like, I love the smell of the burrow. I mean, what? <laughs> so a hundred percent. Hermione, we get like parchment, which is all about learning. We get mown grass, which I was like, maybe this is the muggle world. Maybe, maybe this is about her parents. And then, like, yes, the burrow is Ron. But then the other thing that I loved was how. Harry's favorite smells because we get obviously broomstick handle, which is all about freedom and like his, you know, escape. We hear about Ginny, right? Like when we see Ginny, he's like, oh, that's what that third smell is. But the other one is treacle tart. And at first I was like, oh yeah, I love dessert too. <laughs> but and don't we all don't my we- best friend dessert. <laughs> but then I remember treacle tart is the first dessert he ever eats in the wizarding world. And so the smell is also about Hogwarts and it's about the the magical world itself. And I just, ugh, and I love that. How can you say that that's not about friendship? Those are three smells about friendship, right? Uh, and about him feeling connected to his father, about uh, him feeling connected to Ginny, and then about him feeling at home with Hogwarts, like he finally found his family. Uh, So, Vanessa, we're continuing with Lexio Divina this week, and I found a little sentence for us, and it reads as follows. There was a scraping as everyone drew their cauldrons towards them. Ooh, I think I know where this is. Yeah, do you want to do step one? Yeah, so I think that this is right after they've been given the task in the potions class to make whatever kind of potion it is, and that if they make the best one, they will get Felix Felices. And so everybody gets silent and is like really paying attention and being very mindful. Yeah, and we have that lovely little detail that he says, Slughorn says he's taken it twice in his life, once when he was 24 and once when he was 57. And that just both days were were perfect. I, I love that image of like, I wonder what Slughorn's perfect day was and how was it different, you know, when he was 24 and 57? Oh, I have, I have ideas. <laughs> so let's move to step two, which is where we start thinking allegorically about this short phrase. What does it remind us of? Stories, songs, images? 
there was a scraping as everyone drew their cauldrons towards them. So what it reminds me of is um, every Friday night growing up, we did Shabbat dinner and my mom would do the prayer over the candles. And one of the things that you do is you welcome the bride of Shabbat through three waving motions toward your eyes. And like, that's the way to like welcome the Sabbath. Hmm. There's this like drawing toward you moment, even before Shabbat has formally started or it actually it's the bringing the thing toward you that starts shabbat Mm. and so yeah it's like class has been going on for 10 minutes but this is the moment the class is actually starting Mm. yeah i'm thinking about i can't remember the name of this story but it's an old fairy tale of like someone who comes like a pied piper who draws all the rats out of the city and there's some old german folktale and then but in exchange he demands payment for taking the rats out of the city and the and the townsfolk say no we don't want to do that and so he comes back and charms all of the children out of the city and so in order to get their kids back (laughs) the people of this town have to pay the rat the rat catcher of hamelinger or something like that so it's like the drawing towards you of of something which you expect to be recompensed for, which is happening here, right? People are enthusiastic about this task because there's this magic luck potion available for, for the winner. So that's what I'm reminded of. Yeah, and I think it's so curious that Slughorn offers a prize in class like this. But I love it. Like, it's such a contrast. I mean, the thing that really became clear for me was like, oh, wow. Snape teaches potions through fear and Slughorn teaches it through bribery or love, right? Like that. He- <laughs> Bribery and love are so closely tied. Well, just in the sense of like, he is incentivizing this through, like, if you do really well, you'll get rewarded. And I think because he's trying to get people to fall in love with these potions. I think that that's right. He doesn't just show one potion at the front of the class. He's showing you the range and, and the power of potions. Like, I wanted to take a potions class after this chapter. Yeah, and he's showing you that they should be used sparingly, right? There are actually yes. a lot of lessons. In, yes. Like, potions is not just an academic field. Like, you can have luck in your pocket. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so good. Okay, so step three is what it reminds us of in our own life. And I'll, I'll read again. There was a scraping as everyone drew their cauldrons towards them. There was a scraping as everyone drew their cauldrons towards them. I'm thinking of, um, as you know, I just moved house and we moved into a building that was an old piano factory, but it has been completely remodeled. So it feels like new in a lot of ways and the, and the wooden floor is new. And I'm not particularly careful with furniture things. And so, you know, just moving furniture around, like I've scraped a lot. And Sean is much more careful and has, in fact, put little pads on the bottom of the furniture so that we don't make those marks. But I realized I was like, but I don't care if there are scrapes. Like there's something about I want a house to feel well lived in. And so the marks of the people who have lived there to show. And of course, you don't want to take it to an extreme, but I'm just imagining, you know, the floor or the tables that these students are pulling these cauldrons towards and like all of these scraping marks of all of the students who've been before them. And of course, the whole of this book is about what previous students have done with the half-blooded prince. And so I'm just thinking about, you know, that wisdom and that learning is also scraped into the table, like, you know, scrapes on our own floors signal all of the events that have happened there. I'm also thinking about, I've just started biking a lot more. I moved far away from 
from our studio and office. And so I'm biking as commuting and I'm covered in bruises from head to toe. And I think that a lot of it is that I will like scrape my bike toward me rather than walk like six inches toward my bike. (laughs) And I'm just thinking about all of the times that like rather than move myself, I try to move the world Mm. when like I am small and the world is big. Like I should be moving myself. Mm-hmm. And so like reacquainting myself with like living a bicycling life is just teaching myself again about the times where you sort of move your bike toward you and the times where you move toward it and how to live in a symbiotic relationship with something like that. And yeah, I just think it's so funny the different ways that like I try to control the world rather than just like giving in to certain situations, right? I think about it all the time when trying to deplane. Oh, yes. Like I spend so much mental energy trying to control people 18 (laughs) rows ahead of me to like get their bags off. I'm like, if I think about this hard enough, I can just will them to move faster. Uh, I'm like, all I'm doing is stressing myself out. Like just sit and read for another five minutes. Like the world's not gonna end. Mm. And I think that I just need to start Stop scraping cauldrons toward myself and like mm. move a little bit toward my cauldron. That might have been my step four. Though. I was gonna say, can Sorry. I can I claim that as my step four? <laughs> no, that's my step four. What is step four? So step four is about what the text might be saying to us. What's the message that we can hear within within this text? So let me read it just one last time. There was a scraping as everyone drew their cauldron towards them. So my step four is going to be just a little bit different, which is also that I think that. Part of me has thought about my bike as this, like, bare bones way to get around. And so I haven't, like, bought a more comfortable saddle Mm. or, like, upgraded the handlebars or put – like, I stubbornly haven't put a kickstand on it. Oh, my God. I'm like, I can lean it against myself, which is probably why I'm covered in bruises. So it's like, yes, I can move toward things more, but I also don't have to, like, stubbornly keep some ideal of purity either, right? Like – I can make my butt hurt less by getting a more comfortable seat for my bike. I fully endorse that idea. I just think, right, like sometimes I'll just get like stubbornly prideful about certain things. And I think I'm called to um, chill out. (laughs) What about you, Casper? What are you called to? I'm really inspired by what you said about the mental energy I spend slash waste trying you know, to change how other people are taking down their bags. It really strikes me that in this sentence it says everyone was pulling their cauldrons toward them. Because I think in a plane, everyone is doing that. And I want to try and be the person who does it differently by happily by happily reading. I, I just love that. Well, hopefully you get upgraded and you sit in the front, but that doesn't happen. <laughs> Not often. It's never happened to me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you. This week's voicemail is from Nicole Engelhart, and she's throwing us back to book five about the Hall of Prophecies and our conversation about whether we'd want to know if there were a prophecy about us. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and everyone over at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. My name is Nicole, and I really love your podcast. Thank you guys so much for your commitment to it. I'm a genetic counselor, and I was really struck by your episode on concealment. As part of my job, I help families decide if they want genetic testing and explaining genetic testing results to families with sick kids. A lot of these diseases can be really devastating, and that's why genetic counselors are there. We understand both the disease, and we can also help counsel the families about it. Families who come to see us, they might be struggling if they actually want to know the cause of their child's symptoms. 
sometimes life has been really hard and they just want a crystal ball to show them what life is going to be like, especially what the rest of their child's life is going to be like. And I was so interested that both of you struggled in deciding whether or not you would take the orb if you were in Harry's shoes. I think that desire to know is really common to everyone and that the choice we decide is different. Genetic testing for our families, it can look a lot like the Hall of Prophecies. Families think we're going to be able to hand them this shiny, swirly orb and tell them exactly what their child's life is going to be like. And a lot of people want that in general. That's why there's so many direct-to-consumer genetic tests. But it's a lot more like Harry's prophecy than people expect. There's certainly some things we can say for sure once we do genetic testing. Sometimes we can tell families exactly what's causing their child's symptoms. And for Harry, sometimes we know exactly what's going on. That prophecy is obviously about a dark lord and a baby boy born in July. But there's some really big things missing from that prophecy, like how long until everything happens? Who will live in the end? And those are very big questions and very big uncertainties. And it's the same for our families. It can be frustratingly unclear. Sometimes I can give them a definitive answer about what's causing symptoms, but then they start having questions about uncertainties that I just don't know how to answer. They might say, I know my child will start to lose skills and decline because of this disease, but when will that happen? And I have to tell them that I don't know. Sometimes I even feel guilty but I know I haven't done anything wrong. I'm just the messenger. I've always wondered about why the prophecy shows up in Harry Potter. It's not a typical prophecy, black and white, no escaping your fate. And for the most part, neither is genetics, which is why we offer people the choice to choose if they want to know or not. No one is forced to get genetic testing and why we're there to help them understand what to do with it. Nicole, I'm so struck just by the... I mean, it's a perfect analogy for what the prophecy is about. Perhaps the only difference is that with a prophecy, it's about yourself. And as a parent, when you're responsible for a child, I can imagine there's perhaps an extra desire to know because you want to care for them and provide as much safety and security and happiness, you know, to your kid. But thank you for sharing that. Wow. I I love how there's so many interesting, practical, like real world examples of the same challenges that characters that we meet and love in these books have to have to face. So thank you for sharing that. So Casper, it is now time to bless someone from this week's chapter. Who would you like to bless? I often wonder why Dumbledore asks Slughorn to return, right? Maybe maybe he's one of the last few people that are available. But this lesson really shows me why he is an excellent teacher. And and that all of those previous students with whom he's in touch are not just in touch with him because like he was a weird, creepy guy who invited you to like a private salon. Like he clearly is excellent, inspiring and I don't know, encouraging teacher. And so I'm blessing Slughorn for his capacity to help people fall in love with something that they didn't know they might really enjoy. How about you, Vanessa? I would like to bless Katie Bell. Yes. Who I think for the rest of my life will now be next to my mental definition of the word maturity. Mm. She finds out that Harry is captain. And she, even though she is older than Harry, is like, I'm so glad you're a captain. You're going to be great at it. She says something about like winter tryouts or whatever. And Harry's like, you don't need to try out. And she is like, no. You, you have to make me try out. There might be better people than me. And, like, I do not believe that just because I've been on the team for however many years since before you means that I just automatically get on the team. So she's instructive 
and helpful and encouraging and supportive. And I just think this is like all about the team for her and not at all about her. And when you know when something's not about you, that is just absolutely one of the signs of maturity to me. And so I just want to offer the biggest blessing for Katie Bell. Yeah, she's like walking awesomeness. I'm with you. I'm with you. Blessings on Katie Bell. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners. People are really nice. Or come and join the 1,200 people supporting us on Patreon. It is you who makes this show possible. You can always leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, or join us in one of the pilgrimages. The Emily Bronte pilgrimage registration is now open, and Vanessa and Ariana will be at LeakyCon from October 11th to the 13th. We also hope to see you at one of our live shows. We'll be in Cambridge, Massachusetts, my old hometown. Come and say hi on October 2nd in Washington, D.C. on November 7th, Chicago on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. Next week, we'll be doing an owl post with the amazing Travis McElroy. Don't forget to check out Women of Harry Potter, which has its own feed. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions, executive produced by Ariana Nettleman, and associate produced by Chelsea Erson. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are a proud part of Nightvale Presents. We'd like to thank Nicole Englehart for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next week. And now stay tuned for a blooper. So Vanessa, we're back with Lexio Davida this week, and I've found a little sentence by Ren. I think you said Davida. Davida, loca Davida. That would be a great uh, be uh, drag name. Lexio Davida. Lexio Davida. Actually, Lexio Davina is a good or drag Lexio name. Diva. Yeah, that's also okay. Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs>